Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. Okay, we're all ready to go. Nice to be back again to see you all. Can I get you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes. Now, could I suggest that instead of spending the rest of the evening trying to find it, you might even get to the front of your Bible and you'll get an index, the very page number, and thus you'll find it a lot easier. Um, How do you know you're getting old? Is there any way to measure it? Is there any wee test that you can have for yourself? Well, they do say that you know you're getting old is when you climb the stairs, you get to the top of the stairs, and then you stand on the, uh, the top of the stairs, scratching your head, and trying to figure out, what am I up here for? You know, and I'm not going to go down the stairs until I remember. Because you go to the bottom of the stairs again, then you remember, and you're back up again. So you know you're getting old when you get to the top of the stairs and you can't remember why you're up there. Uh, I got old about 10 years ago. (laughs) For I'm up and down the stairs like a yo-yo trying to figure out what am I doing up here? Is it something in the big bedroom? In my son's bedroom? Is it something up in the attic? My study? What am I doing up here? Getting old. Not being able to remember. And there's some things you don't want to forget. You want to remember. You want to remember the birthdays, the anniversaries, and of course, as a nation, to make sure we don't forget every Remembrance Sunday, Her Majesty and all the political leaders and the heads of the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, they stand in silence at the cenotaph and we lay the puppies. It is there to help us to remember the sacrifices made for our freedom. Uh, God got there a long time before us. And I have a couple of weeks scriptures for you where we are encouraged to remember and not to forget. Here's one of them. It is Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and it's verse 1. And now this wee verse, it's advice especially for young people, uh, the youth is identified. But it's not exclusively advice for young people, it's for all of us. Here's what it says. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Simply saying, as you become a young person uh, and you become aware of life and, and uh, what lies out there and how you're going to live your life as you figure it out, how am I going to live my life? What part is God going to play in this life of mine? And do I need God to play a part in my life? Can I not just forget about God and 
what God represents and, and just live life and all that is out there, that's really a replacement for God. And God would advise you, God would say, don't forget about your creator. So it brings us to God the creator, the maker of the universe. And there's many aspects to all of that and, and many ways you can look at it all. And tonight I just want us to look at it from one perspective, and that is the origins of life. And the atheists will say to us, there is no God. So then we say to atheists, well, if there is no God, you need to explain to us in a rational way where life has come from. Because even science will tell us the law of biogenics that life can only come from life. So if you go way back millions of years and, and billions of years, perhaps even trillions of years, where was the moment when life came into existence? And the atheists will say, well, the answer is simply spontaneous generation. There just came a moment, it may have been a million years, it may have been a billion years, a trillion years away back in time, and there came a moment in the universe when spontaneously life just generated. It came from nowhere. So that argument, rashly speaking, simply would suggest that if I imagine that we bookmark to be a chicken bone, so I'm sort of going halfway to, to meet the argument. I'm sort of giving ground to them. Here's a chicken bone that once was alive, covered in flesh and feathers and wings, and running around a yard and laying eggs. So it once knew what life was, filled with life. But then eventually it was that, and now it's just a bone. So I say to you, there's a chicken bone, and it's a rational assumption. That that chicken bone plus time will eventually spontaneously generate back into life again. You just have to be patient. We'll hang around for a while and see if it happens. You might have to, have to be very patient. You might have to give it a few years. You might have to give it a few decades, a few millenniums. You might have to give it a million years or a million years. You might have to hang around for a trillion years. For, but just be patient. It's going to happen someday. If it happened before, why not expect it to happen again? You'd say that's daft. You'd say that's ridiculous. That's right, it is. Well, well, why would you then assume a universe where there were no chicken bones? No bones of any sort. No previous life. But then there came a moment in the universe, spontaneous generation, life began... And all life you see in the universe today, it came from spontaneous generation. Nah, you can believe that if you want. I think it's far simpler and far more rational to believe in the universe. There was deadness and God spoke and life began. Comes from a life source and that's God himself. So remember God, the creator of life. But then we're encouraged to remember God as uh, the one who gives meaning and purpose to life. 
It's an interesting language what it, it says there. Remember now thy creator in the days of your youth. And then it says, Well, the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. What's that all about? What is this evil day? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the book, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is wondering to himself, yes, I accept God as real, and God made the universe, and I'm the offspring of a divine intervention in time. God has made the world, but do I need him for a meaningful life? So we ask that question. And he's considering the possibility we could push God to the side and treat him like a stranger and live without him and still have a meaningful and purposeful existence. So here's what he does. In chapter 1 and verse 13, this is the, what he says he's going to do. He says, and I will give my heart. And that's the intelligence. That's the determination. This is a serious enterprise. He says, I will give my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. So this is a man trying to figure out with a real investigation whether or not I can live a life without God and replace God with all sorts of human experiences. Get into chapter 2. He tells us what he's tried. He talks about pleasure. He talks about alcohol, drink. He talks about music of all sorts. He talks about a nice house and landscape gardens and, and, and just enjoying a lovely ascetic environment to live in. And, and surely is that not what we, everybody's longing for and to build that kind of a lifestyle? He talks about economic security. Having a good pension, a good job, a good wage, and uh, plenty of economic security for today and for tomorrow. And, and surely if all that is built into your life, the building blocks of a successful life, then surely how could you not be satisfied with that? How could that end up as an evil day, a bad day? How could it be? Well, he goes through the whole gamut of all sorts of experiences. But then you get at chapter 2 and verse 11, and this is the evil day. He says, then I looked. So, he's tried all these things, all these other experiences. He said, I've experienced all of these things, but I'm now, the time has now come. I've got to evaluate them honestly. Am I a happy man? Am I content? Is my life full of purpose and meaning? Because I've replaced God with all of these things. So here is his evaluation. He says, Then I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought, and all the labor that I'd labored to do, and he says, And behold, it was vanity. So that means empty. God says, Look, would you remember me? And don't replace me with anything else because I want to spare you coming to a time when you realize you've lived this empty life. 
And I'd spare you that. Then he goes on to say, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. He says, that's the, the sense of futility. It literally means to chase after the wind. <laughs> to chase after the wind. If I was to chase lame around this hall, it wouldn't be very fast for either of us, but we would, uh, you know, at least once I would catch up with them and I got my hands around a, a, an ankle or a leg or a, a wrist, I could say, I've got something of substance. There's something there to get a hold of. How can you get a hold of the wind? Just saying that there's a futility in living without God and replacing God with all of these earthly experiences. There's a futility there. That's the evil day. It's a wee bit like what we were saying this morning with the prodigal son. And we just imagine the father having a conversation and trying to persuade the young fella, son, I don't go that far country. I can understand why you might be drawn to it and what it might promise you, but he says, believe me, son, it's a bad place. It's a place of ruination. It'll destroy your life. And the father would try to spare him that. That's what God's saying here, young people. He says, trust me. You have only one life to be lived. He says, I can't understand why you'd be tempted to cast me aside and live for pleasure and for money and nice things and economic security. I can understand that kind of a lifestyle. But he says, believe me, the time will come and you look back at it all and you'll say, I'm not satisfied with it all. It's left me feeling a sense of emptiness and futility. There's no pleasure in it. So God says, remember he's the creator. And don't replace them with earthly things. It's not the answer. It's a wee bit like the wee story I've told you before about the wee dog. A wee pup comes round and round in circles. And this bigger, older dog comes along and says to the wee dog, What in the world are you doing? You look rather ridiculous. And the wee dog says, Well, every time I'm happy, my tail waggles. So I've come to this conclusion that my happiness has got something to do with my tail, so I'm just running around trying to catch my tail, but the tail is always beyond the reach of the teeth, going round and round in circles. The bigger dog says, you know something, I remember those days myself. I used to do the same, but I'm an awful lot wiser today. And he says, we dog, take it from me, forget about your tail, and you just get on with your life and do the things that we dogs are responsible to do, and you'll discover your tail will come right on behind. That's God's wisdom. He says, you young people, I can understand why you think it's better for you to forget about God and chase after the pleasure and the economic security and the nice things of life and all those experiences out there. He says, I can understand that attraction. God says, forget about that world out there. And you remember your creator and live for him. And he will guarantee your happiness and the purpose and the meaningful of life will come right on behind as a consequence of following the Lord. Will you take your Bible and turn to another wee verse. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, if you're here this morning, uh, if you're here every Sunday morning, if you belong to the assembly, if uh, you're only visiting, or if you just look in from social media, uh, I'll let you know what goes on here every Sunday morning. Uh, the believers of this place come and they, they do something, it's a wee ritual, it's a little ceremony you could even say, uh, sometimes it's referred to as breaking bread, others refer to it as remembering the Lord. And here's this wee verse, and it's First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse uh, 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24. It says, And when you had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. So that's what the believers do. Some give thanks for the bread, and the bread's passed around. Some give thanks for the cup and the wee, wee bit of wine is passed around and everybody takes their wee sip and in doing so they are remembering the Lord. But what specifically about the Lord? Well, we, we can remember his deity, we can remember uh, all of his wonderful teaching, the miracles and so on, but there's something specific when we take the bread and we take the wine. What is that? Well, if we go down to verse 26, it says this. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death. That's what it's about. We don't just come to remember the Lord's life and his teaching and his miracles. We come in the center of our thoughts as a hillside and a cross we remember the Lord's death. And often as we think of the Lord's death we, we look for little examples throughout the scriptures that might illustrate it, explain it, help us to understand it, to help us in our remembrance of the Lord. And very often we remember the children of Israel down in Egypt. And we remember Moses and he says, Pharaoh, I've come in the name of the Lord Jehovah. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, uh, you can't have them. They're going to be building our big works and we need them and you can't have them. So God, through the miracles of Moses, begins to prize the hand of Pharaoh. Puts the pressure on Pharaoh and finally the real pressure is on. The angel of death will pass through the land and the firstborn is going to die. An awful lot of worried firstborn. As the calendar did draws closer and closer and closer. And then it's maybe dawn. Maybe some of the firstborn amongst the Jews had a word with Moses. says, hey Moses, uh, what about the firstborn amongst us? Are we threatened? Threatened? Is the angel of death going to come into our homes and, and kill our firstborn, the Jewish firstborn? What about our lives? Moses 
says, Lord, the people amongst the, the Hebrews are worried. The firstborn of the Hebrews are worried. God says, I will give them a reassurance of their protection. Here's what they've got to do. Get the father of each home to take a little lamb. It's going to be kept for a while under close observation. And it has to be without blemish. It can't be diseased. It can't be chosen because it has no market value. Because it got broken limbs or something. No, it has to be a spotless lamb. Why so? Because this isn't just about a wee lamb dying. This is going to be a reflection of Calvary's hillside and the death of God's own son. The spotless, deified son of God. And then there comes that moment when, after being kept and under observation, it had to be killed. That we phrase us there. Not just you've got to keep it, you've got to kill it. It has to die. The protection of the firstborn is closely tied to the death of the lamb. They're not disconnected. They're closely tied together. If this firstborn has to be spared, then the lamb can't be spared. The lamb must die. The lamb's dead. And then the blood has to be gathered in a basin. And then something like a wee paintbrush, a wee bush, uh, something out in the garden, a wee bush made of hyssop, and it has to be used like a paintbrush. You've got to gather the blood. And the house where the firstborn Hebrews are, They've got to take that blood and put it down across the doorposts and across the little. And God gave them a promise. Let the firstborn of these Hebrews' homes know that on the night of the Passover, I will pass over. When I see the blood, I will pass over. That was the assurance. You see, that's the cross. That's the Lord's death. His broken body and his shed blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, there's God's Lamb nailed to a cross. We remember the Lord's death. Two sides to it you must remember. It's universal in its scope. Universal. First John chapter 2 and verse 1. It mentions a very strange sort of a word. It talks about the Calvary's cross and the work there as being a propitiation, which seems a strange, weird kind of a word, but let me tell you what it means. Let us say that uh, Liam has a car for sale and he sticks a price tag on it, £10,000. And I assume I need a car, so I'm heading off to try and negotiate. I just start off on the basis that that's his top price. He's got to come down. And, and I come along and I say, Liam, I see the car is offered there for £10,000. Uh, I, I know you, that's just your, your, your upper price. I'll offer you 5000 But then, Liam, there's no smile in his face, just a stern look. He, he says, well, I approach it in the same spirit that that's your opening bet. That if you want that car, yes, I might have to come down, but you're going to have to come well up. So then I come up there, 6,000, and the throne is still there. 
I say, well, come on, what are you going to come down to? He says, what about, uh, about nine? I say, uh, what about seven? He says, well, what about eight? I say, well, what about 7,500? And as soon as I say that, a wee smile breaks out in his face, and that sort of appeals to him, that sort of satisfies him. And he says, well, if you're happy with that, I'm happy with that. The deal is done. Hands are shook, and that's, we're satisfied. And it's simply addressing what happened upon the cross, where Jesus died, saying that sacrifice, heaven was happy. That's the price that must be paid for sins to be forgiven. Heaven is happy with the atoning sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. But then it says this, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, before I became a Christian, like I grew up surrounded by the gospel. And I heard the gospel many a time, but there's a dimension to it that I never fully grasped. It was this. That yes, Jesus died for everybody else in the world, except for you, Finley. I know it sounds stupid. I know it is stupid. It sounds ridiculous, but when you're in spiritual darkness, the devil has you believe anything. And I thought that I was the one that was excluded from the work of the cross and the love of God. God wants us to know nobody is excluded. No matter what continent you live in, no matter what nation you come from, no matter what nationality, no matter the color of your skin, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, Jesus has died for the sins of the world. It's universal. But here's the wee bit that you must get. It's personal. Personal. Galatians 2 and 20. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself. I can stand at the cross and understand what was happening there. Jesus dying for sin. And I realized he was dying for the sins of this Yule Finley. He died for me. He took my place. And that's what God wants you to remember. Not just that he died for the whole world to be saved. He died that you might be saved. So he died for all of your sins died for you. Now, I could read you a cheque for £10,000. <laughs> I'm not going to, don't, don't be bothering me at the door. But let's say I could read you a cheque for £10,000 and it's in your hand. And, and, and maybe you've made a phone call to, to find out there's their money in them my account to cover that and the bank manager says oh, the fellas plenty of money to cover that so you've got a check ten thousand pounds i can buy a new car i can buy a new suit of clothes i can buy i can go on a holiday and you imagine all the things you can buy with it but you can't buy yourself a penny too with it unless you put it into your account it has to be applied has to be banked. And just because the Lord Jesus died for the world and he died for you 
It's not going to do you any spiritual good until you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and be my saviour and take my sins away. Then a spiritual blessing kicks in. But not unto them. And maybe some of you are here this evening and you know all these things. You've heard these things plenty of times before. And you know that Jesus died for the world and Jesus died for you. And you believe those truths. It's like a check that's still in your hand. But you've got to bring it into your heart. You've got to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that on that cross you died for me. Come into my heart and be my saviour and take my sins away. Let's close We word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus. We thank our Father you made the universe. You made life. But more than anything else, our Father, we thank you, you made a way of salvation. When sinful men and women and young people can get right with God, and we can do so through the work of the cross. Father, we are so glad that you died for the world. But as individuals, our Father, we're grateful you died for each one of us. And each one of us can be saved and have our sins to be forgiven. Pray for any of our Father who's here tonight without Christ. They'll not leave without him as Saviour and Lord. These things we ask in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. God bless you.